welcome. Join Dr. Muji, a psychology professor at a university in Ohio, and her daughter, Iyabode, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way. We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. All right, mom, another episode. How's life? How are you today? I'm fine. Life is good. One of the messages that I have on, um, I have inspirational cards, the coming sets, and I have one that has 20 inspirational messages. And today I want to share one of the messages. Um, you know how sometimes it's like music, a song, every time you hear it over and over, you wake up during the day you're doing things. It's the same music. This particular verse, in the last three or four days, it's just been coming up for me. Uh, let me share it first and then I can talk more about that. For I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, probably because we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic time. This verse speaks not only to me, I'm hoping that it also speaks to our listeners. The whole idea that the supreme, the divine, something greater than I has plans for me, has plans for you, has plans for our listeners. And we don't know what the plans are. We're open to whatever it is. So once again, for I know the plans I have for you. So that has been reoccurring for several days. So it's like something good is about to happen, you know? And it's like, yes, I'm ready. Whatever it is, I'm ready because I know it's going to be good. I hope that will be the same for our listeners and of course for you, my daughter. I love that so much. I always find it so interesting because your day and your update is continuously just inspirational. It's incredible. I have first no biblical references. I have a lot of not so inspirational and motivational updates. So get ready, listeners. Come along with me on this journey. That's going to be very different to the one that my mom just took you on. Um, life is good with me as well. I guess in that way, we're very similar today in that things are going okay. And I am hopeful, although things are not looking too great in terms of the pandemic and society as a whole. However, we'll skip past that and just hope for the best. And I love that idea too of thinking or believing that some other entity has some sort of awareness of what's next for us. You know, there are some people who believe life is a simulation and we're just in a simulation. So maybe for them, they're just thinking that hopefully the right person will hit the right buttons for them. In terms of life for me, just as an update to last week, because I had discussed the birthday boy and how difficult gift selections can be for him. Since it is still his birthday month, I do have to come full circle and share all of how that went. Um, not so well. That's how it went. Not so well at all. He's lived up to his reputation as being a tough person to gift. And I think it does go back to the essence of just who he is and that it is admirable in that he doesn't expect much. He doesn't want much. And so part of it is he then also teases out, well, what do I truly need in life? And if 
this isn't something that I do need, then no offense, sis, but I'm going to have to reject it and say, I don't need this. And so it's been an interesting birthday season in our family. Um, Mom, my mom knows all about it, but let's just say that it didn't go too well. What do you think, mom? (laughs) Yes. um, For listeners who don't know who you're talking about, the birthday person guy is your younger brother. True. I should have clarified that. That is very true. This is my little brother. That is who the birthday boy is. Shame on you if you've not been listening and don't know who that is. However, we welcome new listeners, so it's okay. Let me minimize that shame. At this point, I'm just hopeful that maybe Christmas will be a chance for me to redeem myself. I'll find a way to knock it out of the park. Yes, another baseball pun very early in the episode, but I'm hopeful that Christmas will be my time. So once again, I repeat the same message. If you have suggestions or ideas for someone who is a bit more particular, who doesn't necessarily want everything or every material possession in the world, please let me know. I'd be so happy to receive that feedback. He does still love me and I love him, so it's all good. And also, given the pandemic and the obliteration of my social life, I was just going through some old photos and reminiscing of what I was doing this time last year and just comparing how different this year has been. For anyone that knows me, usually summer I try to go on as many trips as possible. I try to practically just not even be in my home and be away for as much of the summer period as possible. And so this time is a little challenging for me. I'm learning to deal with it. Usually I'd be able to share travel updates and share some of my travel plans. However, now and really in the next few months, that likely won't be possible. So I'll just be sharing my travel from home, I suppose, because at this point in time, I travel from my couch to my kitchen and going overseas is more like going to grab my mail, going over the sea of people in masks. (laughs) That's practically my travel experience. So it's unbelievable. And you might have noticed this from the episode title, but this is a two-parter that we have for today. It's a topic in which my mom and I just had so much that we wanted to explore and couldn't necessarily decide where to start or even where to stop. And so it's a special treat for all of you and also for the both of us. And also something important to mention is that in these cases in which we do have these two-part episodes, we won't make you wait the entire week We'll release the part two midweek. That way you have that second portion to be able to listen to and enjoy and hopefully get back to us too with your thoughts as well as your commentary. And this topic for today is the bystander effect. So without further ado, mom, what exactly is the bystander effect? In one of our past episodes, we had actually talked about bias in general and a bit about the actor-observer bias. The bystander effect is another form of cognitive bias. It happens when the presence of others discourages an individual from assisting another person in a situation that is an emergency. It is not helping, for example, when a crime is being committed or a negative incident or behavior is occurring. The greater the number of bystanders, the greater the effect. That is, the less likely it is for someone to assist a person in a stressful circumstance. In general, people tend to assist another in distress if no other person or a few other people are around. 
actually two social psychologists, Bib Latin and John Daly, first described this phenomenon in the 60s interesting because when you hear that definition, it rings a bell, or at least it rang a bell for me when hearing that definition. And I think it's something that our listeners will be able to relate to in that even if they've never heard the term bystander effect, just that description, it does actually resound and it makes you think, wait, I can understand that, or I kind of have had an appreciation of this in my life. And when I first heard of this phenomenon, I had to investigate a bit more because in so many instances in my life, I've known something like this is definitely at play, but I just never realized it was actually a thing or it was actually coined this term of bystander effect. And the origin of the concept ties back to an event that sounds like a horror or thriller movie in which there was this woman in Queens, New York, that was brutally murdered outside her apartment building with what's believed to be many onlookers who failed to step in or even call law enforcement. And the details are far too gruesome. It's such an unfortunate story. And it's been debated just how many people or even if any other people were actually aware or witnessed the situation or whether other people even did try to contact the police. But overall, the phenomenon is one that I think most of our listeners will definitely understand and will just off the bat be able to recognize and even have potentially life examples where they've seen this take place. And we'll get into some of the more public ones or one in particular that's really relevant at this point in time. So with this in mind, why should we care about the bystander effect or bother to recognize it even exists? We and our listeners should care because the well-being, security, interest of others might depend on any one of us. Thus, having knowledge about this phenomenon, bystander effect, can prepare each of us to help another even when those around us might not help at all or might not initiate help. Furthermore, you or I or any of our listeners might be on the other end as victims of a crime, have a crisis and be in need of assistance, but does not receive it. And so as catching curveballers, I just came up with that phrase, <laughs> catching curveballers. So as catching curveballers, we can understand why we might not or do not receive anticipated assistance and be prepared to respond to the dire situation we are facing as best as we can. Wow, I love that. Catching curveballers. I have to say you have a thing with names. Maybe it's a, another skill or talent that you haven't explored fully because that really does click and just sounds so nice to the ears. And so why do people behave in this manner? So if they presumably have the power or ability to help, why not do so? Two major factors play a role. One is diffusion of responsibility, meaning the more the number of onlookers or people present, the less personal responsibility these individuals will feel to do something. The other major factor is social influence in that people pay attention to the behavior of others around them to determine their behavior, either to do something or do nothing. Going off on a tangent briefly, 
Have you observed that sometimes when you are driving and you're about to get to a red stop light with two left lanes, in one of the lanes, there might be six or more vehicles waiting for the light to turn green. And on the other lane, there's no vehicle at all. I will use the lane with no vehicle while wondering and asking myself, why didn't anyone, any other vehicle use this lane? I think this is a good example of social influence or herd mentality. (laughs) That's hilarious. I think it's perhaps more that you're a very alert person and quite frankly, you're just sharp and on it from the moment you wake up. For me, I feel as if I just need my morning coffee first. I need to, in some cases, just have slept enough to be able to rationally think through which lane I should even select. Because I have to admit, there are many days that I can think of where I absolutely would be that person who just goes behind the long line, even if there is an empty lane that's perfectly accessible and seemingly safe. But it might be your personality type and the fact that you might not need all the caffeine that I need to be able to make some of these great decisions just first thing in the morning. But by the time it's maybe midday, then the chances are even. All right. And what other factors contribute to the bystander effect? In general, people might not help a person in distress because it is natural for one to freeze or go into shock when seeing another person in crisis or distress. One's fear might be because of one's assessment of not being able to make a difference because one is too weak or that one might not have all the necessary information to judge how dangerous the threat is to the other's safety. Other factors that might contribute to the bystander effect is one's state of mind. For example, an intoxicated person is less likely to help. Research has shown this in sexual assault cases. Use of moral disengagement mechanisms This term was popularized by psychologist Albert Bandura. Beyond displacing or diffusing responsibility also helps us understand the bystander effect. Moral disengagement convinces people that ethical standards do not apply to them in a particular context. We separate our moral reactions from inhuman conduct and disable any self-condemnation. Beyond displacing or diffusing responsibility that we talked about earlier, humans employ other cognitive mechanisms. For example, we try to make morally questionable acts seem right, at least to ourselves, or we use flowery labels to reduce tension in our communication and try to be politically correct. Sometimes we compare our reprehensible behavior with a more reprehensible one. Or for some of us, we might disregard or misrepresent injurious consequences. For some of us, we might engage in dehumanizing the other person, the victim, because we view or treat others as if they are not human, that they lack our mental capacities. 
Right. It's so interesting because all of those examples that you shared, I imagine that they likely influence so many other behaviors. So it's interesting to hear how they're related to even the bystander effect. But they're also examples that I know that more than likely many of our listeners will be able to relate to, whether there are best characteristics or those that we likely shy away from admitting we do. But there are many times where we do use, as you've stated, those flowery labels to reduce the tension when we're communicating with others or trying to be politically correct, whether it's at work or at a dinner with the in-laws or wherever other situations you might feel there's that need to be politically correct. And then also too, unfortunately, just treating others as if they're not human or as if they don't have the same mental capabilities that we have. And so often it seems like something that we do unquestioningly and that more than likely we do more often than we realize, but it's fascinating the effect they could have in this phenomenon of bystander effect and more than likely in so many other areas of our lives. And with that said, in what situations have researchers actually studied the bystander effect? Researchers have studied the bystander effect in a wide variety of situations, as many situations as our listeners might think of. To summarize these situations, researchers have studied the bystander effect when an individual knows the victim, when an individual knows the perpetrator, when an individual knows other bystanders, and when an individual does not know anyone at all. This could be on college campuses or schools, in hospitals, at various workplaces, neighborhoods, and communities. Researchers have studied the bystander effect as it relates to wide array of negative behaviors or crimes. Bullying, sexual assaults, dating violence, hazing in fraternities or sororities, heavy drinking among college students. Also, the bystander effect has been studied as it relates to microaggressions. These are sexist, racist, indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. It would be ideal to study this phenomenon more in cases such as the George Floyd police killing. In the George Floyd case, many of us have many unanswered questions. For example, what was going on in the minds of each of the police officers that apprehended him on that fateful day? What was on the mind of the one of the officer who was standing or observing the other three officers as they restrained George Floyd? What was going on in the minds of the public bystanders or witnesses of the situation? Could anyone or some of them have done more, which might have changed the outcome of this case? Could having the EPIC program in place at the Minnesota Police Department have resulted in a different outcome? I am hoping that our discussion today might help our listeners address some of these and other related questions.
And I hope it does too. I think with that case in particular, and that definitely was the case I alluded to earlier, there are so many unanswered questions and just so many questions that even seeing the video itself, I I hate even having to describe what happened with that case because it really is emotional to even try to think of or to replay in my mind. It's a lot. However, you can't help but wonder what was going on in the minds of those police officers. What was happening to the point where you could be a bystander? And so I'm removing all of those that were civilians from this even coining of bystander because I think their power dynamics and just it's a complex situation for them as civilians. However, for the remaining law enforcement officers who do have a level of power in which to serve as a bystander in that situation is just, I can't justify it. I can't find any reason for it. And so you can't help but have questions as to how it could be feasible and how it could be possible. And our discussion here today likely won't answer every question you may have, but we hope that it helps you better understand the phenomenon as a whole, because it's one that comes into play in this very serious situation, but it also comes into play in so many other circumstances that we witness and that we see, or unfortunately we might be a part of in our everyday life. And so being able to understand it, being able to understand the factors that contribute to it, as well as what we'll discuss later means to even reduce it. That's all powerful and informative information that we hope to arm you with. And we hope to have you better understand and being able to apply in your everyday life. And before it goes into a more emotional discussion. Let's change gears. And how much does the quote unquote victim matter in the bystander effect? So does it depend on his or her gender relative to the aggressor? Or does it depend on even age or even race? Or does it perhaps even depend on the perception that a bystander might have of the relationship between the aggressor and the victim. Maybe it seems to be a parent and a child, or maybe it just seems to be a couple having a rough moment, or maybe it's the couple you think, why are they even together? But regardless, does any of that matter in even the bystander effect? Those are great questions and um, issues you've brought up. Um, The characteristics of the victim or target, the aggressor or perpetrator, and intervener or interveners matter. But it has not been easy to tease out the differential roles these play because other factors come into play. That is, factors and characteristics interact. Typically, we would expect that if the victim is female and the aggressor is male, the more likely bystanders or onlookers would intervene. If the victim is a child and the aggressor is much older, the more likely people will want to intervene. However, the perceived nature of the relationship between the victim and the aggressor also matters. There have been situations where bystanders did not intervene because they felt that the two parties know one another well. For example, They may be romantic partners or they may be parent and child. To complicate matters, we have to consider social group membership. Is the victim or aggressor a member of an in-group or out-group? Group size, that is number of bystander matters too, as I've alluded to earlier on. A bystander is more likely to intervene if there's a smaller group 
than a larger one. Bottom line, bystander characteristics can encourage as well as inhibit helping. What's also been so fascinating about the bystander effect is just how well-researched it does seem. I know that I tend to say that or have been saying that for our previous topics, but the way it's been exhaustively examined and the way that you've even described it here in terms of the different settings, the different scenarios and situations, even the different factors that have been identified to be at play, it makes me just feel more confident in this effect. And it makes me feel more confident in even the discussion that we're having here today and the advice or recommendations that we could perhaps be able to share with our listeners. I do though, as always, have to ask this because it's just a reality of life. What are the shortcomings of the studies that have been done about the bystander effect or what perhaps could be the heavily criticized aspects that exist? Criticisms of bystander effect and bystander interventions are one, many are experimental or simulation studies to the extent that they're just imitation of the situation or process. And they might require participants to read vignettes or scenarios and then rate their likelihood of engaging in a number of actions. So the studies will be focusing on intention to intervene rather than focusing on real-life bystander behaviors or studying bystanders in field settings. Such studies, of course, the latter will be of behaviors in actual contexts. Fortunately, a recent study, at least I'm aware of a recent study published in January 2020, that suggests that real-life bystander behavior captured on closed caption TV, CCTV cameras, show that bystander intervention is the norm and that the likelihood of bystanders being victimized or hurt is low. Interesting, because as I recall, there was this show, maybe it was What Would You Do? Do you remember that show? That's what Mm -hmm. it went by, the name. Yes. And I always found it fascinating because I couldn't really get a good metric or a good scale of how often people do intervene. And so I've learned everything about bystander effect from that show, obviously. But I'm torn because it almost seemed as if more often than not, people would not intervene, regardless of whether it was a setting with many people or just a handful of people. When there was that camera approach to document whether the bystanders would jump in, it felt as if it was almost a rare occurrence that they would. So it's interesting to hear this study or to hear from you know January of this year, the suggestion that perhaps it is more common than we realize for bystanders yeah. to jump in. Maybe something's changing through time because that show I think is a little old now, but Maybe things are changing. Maybe the climate's changing or adjusting in some way. So that's interesting to hear. And also, my mom dropped a word that I I want to pull our listeners. If you have ever heard this word before, please DM us, please email us, please let us know because I have to know this answer. Vignettes. V-I-G-N-E-T-T-E-S. Vignettes. In day-to-day language, my mom says vignettes. (laughs) That is wild. Okay, what did you say it meant? Scenarios. 
scenarios. Yeah. I am speechless yes. right now. That is yeah. just something else. <laughs> Listeners, please tell me if you're with me on this because I think I'm pretty good sometimes with words, but vignettes just dropped yes. as if it's nothing or as if it's just another word that everyone uses. That was something special. I'm writing that down in my tracker, in my positive events tracker. I learned a new word that I, I don't even know how to reuse now. I, I'll probably think of scenarios <laughs> versus vignettes. I mean, uh, beignets, like the New Orleans dessert, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. <laughs> but this is a great segue because what then makes bystanders more likely to intervene against violent or criminal behaviors? Thanks for asking this question. I found it fascinating while reading a Psychology Today article that a university professor referred to bystanders that help as, quote, upstanders or moral rebels. I really like the word upstander. Upstanders are individuals who have confidence in their judgment and values and believe their actions will make a difference. They are more likely to take the time to stop and think before acting. They are more likely to do the right thing. They are ready to catch curveballs, to face the unexpected, unplanned events. We can all be upstanders, my daughter. Okay, if you say so. So then how exactly can we be the upstanders, especially for anyone like me who from time to time, since I've been in school, if I've seen a fight or any sort of commotion, I usually am running in the other direction versus ever (laughs) trying to step in. So how can someone like me be an upstander? That's very funny. I can imagine you actually running in the opposite direction because (laughs) you don't like trouble at all. Well, um, it is a fact that good people can be involved in bad behavior. Hence the common quote, just following orders, excuse. Becoming an upstander begins early in one's life and begins in the family. Higher family management where there are parental guidelines for and modeling of appropriate and altruistic behaviors for children is associated with greater likelihood of intervening. Having a more positive school climate and culture, for instance, a school that feels safe, respectful, welcoming, and supportive of student learning, are also associated with greater likelihood of intervening. While higher feelings of social exclusion and teacher and peer discrimination are associated with inactive responses to aggression and retaliation, building confidence in one's skills to intervene successfully helps too. Reducing or eliminating strongly prejudiced misogynistic peer norms will facilitate positive bystander intervention. And so what you're telling me is that the reason I'm not an upstander by default and definitely have to work on it is because either it was a family situation or reflective of my upbringing, or it was reflective of my school climate, or perhaps just peer interactions or maybe just even just confidence in my abilities to actually step in. 
So it's one of those factors, perhaps even more. You know, because I'm recording this with you, perhaps it's a school or that type of climate versus at home. However, I know growing up, especially with brothers, there were many times in which I have to say that it's probably more of that. And that's the reason I'm not an upstander because they put me through enough. So maybe that's the reason. All right. Well, earlier you mentioned that the fewer the people around, the more likely bystanders are to intervene. So maybe COVID-19 will help there in that there will already be such a limited amount of people anywhere. So odds are someone might be willing to step in to help another person in distress. However, realistically speaking, what can we actually do ourselves to reduce the bystander effect? We can reduce bystander effect, that is, encourage bystanders to assist by increasing awareness and by training. Encouraging and teaching about how to act, for example, to speak up when observing a crime or harmful practices. To know that we need not wait for another to act before we do. We can educate and be educated to increase empathy, to be better able to understand and share the feelings of others and increase altruism, to be more selfless and concerned about the well-being of others. We should be willing to challenge bad behaviors. We should all learn to worry less about the consequences of helping and worry more about the example we're setting for future generations. If you are the victim of a crime or in a crisis, pick out one person in the crowd and make eye contact. Try your best to elicit empathy. But don't make it awkward. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Obviously, if you're the victim of a crime, please absolutely follow that guidance. Do not listen to my terrible joke. But also with this in mind, are there programs that can help people work on this? Yes. There are bystander intervention training or programs which try to reduce passive and avoidant bystander roles. Others attempt to increase active bystander role. They typically include Latin and Dali's steps. Those are the two who came up with the concept of bystander effects. And their steps include one, notice the event or situation. Two, interpret the event or situation as an emergency. Three, accept personal responsibility for intervening. Four, know how to intervene. And five, finally, implement intervention decisions. Building on the ideas of earlier researchers, another researcher, Bonn, developed a framework that he calls five barriers to intervention that educational programs can work on eliminating. These barriers include failure to notice, failure to identify the situation as high risk, failure to take responsibility for intervening, failure to intervene due to skills deficit, and failure to intervene due to audience inhibition. Some organizations and agencies here in the U.S. run bystander trainings. For example, 
the National Lawyers Guild. There's also the Ethical Policing is Courageous EPIC Training Program. I mentioned EPIC earlier on. I think this is where I actually am spelling out what EPIC means. Ethical Policing is Courageous Training Program developed by police officers with outside experts including a social psychologist. This program is geared towards police officers in several U.S. states and cities, which teaches officers that real loyalty is not covering up bad behavior, but preventing it. In general, there are different intervention formats, and they range from high threat, low threat, supportive-based interventions or trainings. And all of that is so fascinating to hear, especially the fact that there is this framework in place from different organizations that can actually help others understand how they could reduce or work towards minimizing the bystander effect, especially since there are many roles and job duties in which it's a critical and essential part of what you do. It's a it's part of your day-to-day work. And so being able to minimize that, I would imagine, should just be a default, as in it should be something that all individuals individuals that are taking on that job responsibility should be well-trained in and very well understand. I especially like the aspect in terms of accepting personal responsibility for intervening. So often, whether it's a case of perhaps you just don't see something, right? If you don't see a particular situation, then of course, there isn't a situation or the chance for you to feel as if perhaps you should even step in. But When you see something, when you see behavior that you know very well is not appropriate or perhaps that you even just suspect is not appropriate, and this is where we have to be a bit delicate so that we're not just poking our noses into every single person's business and what they're doing constantly. However, we know very well situations in which we see something just doesn't feel right or something feels very wrong or we see someone who's clearly showing signs of distress and being able to accept that personal responsibility, even though you're not personally responsible for that person in all cases, being able to have that element of human compassion can make a difference in how likely you would be to step in or perhaps to reach out to someone who can step in because it's understandable that there are situations in which it might be putting undue risk to ourselves as well as the person in the situation to begin with or other people. However, knowing that with that personal responsibility that we feel, we then have the ability to be able to move forward to reach out to an expert or reach out to someone who can help. Or if it's a situation in which we can intervene, we're confident in doing so. All right. And that wraps up part one of the Bystander Effects series. Join us in a few days to hear the remainder of our discussion. And as always, feel free to share your thoughts as well as your personal experiences with this phenomenon. That is all for now. Thank you for spending time with us. Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's catchingcurveballs at gmail.com, all one word. Or you can follow us on Instagram at catchingcurveballspodcast. That's catchingcurveballspodcast. Be sure to share all your thoughts all your commentary, and keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. We cannot wait to connect with you soon.